0: We'll be in Genesis 37. Um, Have you heard of Dunning and Kruger? Sounds like a weapons manufacturer. It's not. It's two social scientists that are well-known for this idea. They've done research papers on it. They've done all kinds of stuff. Uh, And it's people that are too dumb to know it. They don't put it that way though. They say unskilled and unaware. You can just Google unskilled and unaware. And they've done this research and it was triggered by this bank robber a number of years ago. And this guy was robbing these banks, just blatant, no hood on, uh, he's just walking in, staring at the camera, like they're getting perfect pictures of him and everything. And so finally, the, he's traced down. They, they put an APB out for him. He robs like four banks. They find him and they identify him and they say, Yeah, we identified you from the video of the banks that you robbed. And he's like, What? How could you see me? I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, I had the juice on. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, I put lemon juice on my face. If you put lemon juice on your face, video cameras can't see you. And the guy was dead serious. And so that sparked these two guys to be like, Are there really people like that? Guess what? There are really people like that. (laughs) And they have all these like really funny statistics, like 89% of drivers say they get tailgated. Only 11% of drivers say they ever tailgate. Okay, either there's one dude that always is tailgating everyone, or there's a lot more tailgating going on than we want to admit. So their whole idea is this kind of like look out, Uh, we can be doing stuff and involved in things and we think we're doing the right thing, we're not. I think the Proverbs had Dunning and Kruger beat by about 3,000 years because it says there is a way that seems right, but the end is destruction. So there can be these ways that we think we're doing and, and, and what we're about is the right thing and all the while we're unskilled and unaware of it or we're heading in the wrong direction. So hopefully what you're seeing in the book of Genesis as we've gone through this is that that can take place. There can be these ways in in a family where they lack a skill and they don't even realize they lack the skill and they just keep repeating the same thing, okay? So I'll, I'll try to show that. There's a cycle we're gonna see repeated here. A dad plays favorites with his sons One of the sons um, deceives and lies. Uh, Another of the sons wants to kill the deceiver, the liar. That guy has to leave his family for a long time. The younger brother does. He's in isolation for 20 years. There's a reunion and a reconciliation. Now that's the exact story that happened with Isaac and his, his two boys, Jacob and Esau. And now, Jacob is going to repeat this exact same mistake with his 11 sons at this point and Joseph. Joseph's doing the exact same thing. They wanna murder him. There's a clothing involved. There's deceit. There's lies. He takes off for 20 years. They don't see him. It's identical. It's like they're unskilled and they're unaware of it. And sin now, this certain kind of sin has embedded itself into this family and they don't even know it anymore. And now it's just carrying out its cycles inside this family, just carrying out the cycle. It's sad kind of, because Jacob is becoming his dad Esau. He's doing the exact same things. Did you ever find that in your own life? Where there was like an epiphany and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm my dad. Or oh my goodness, I'm my mom. For me, it was my mom. I'm like all the things that I said I would never do because my mom did them, I'm doing them, right? Ever happened to you? Like, hey, were you born in a barn? Shut the door. My mom used to say that. I'm like, listen, you were there. Was I born in a barn? You tell me. I mean, you're asking, that's the dumbest question, right? I'm never gonna say that. Guess what I say now? To my kids when they leave the door open. Oh, you born in a barn? They haven't figured out the comeback yet. You were there, you should know. Like all these things, it just, it's like, it gets in you and you're like, oh. And what Dunning and Kruger found was this the only way to get someone that's unskilled and unaware of it, the only way to help them is guess what? You need some powerful force from outside to come in and to slam them and to help them and to move them out of the unskilled and unaware of it. Well, the good news is that's Genesis. Genesis. So you've got these families that are unskilled and unaware of it, and they keep kind of making the same mistakes over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again. And what God does again and again and again is he comes in and tries to move them out of their brokenness and move them out of their cycles into flourishing. And that's what he's gonna do here. Sometimes God's work is just on full display. Dreams, vision, it's just like, wow, okay, there it is. Other times, what we're gonna see right now is it's very dark you can't see God working. The only way you can actually see God working is if you read the whole story and then actually look back on the story and oh, okay, now I get it. It's like, it's like those movies that you cannot pick up the movie the first time and you have to watch that movie a second time. And the second time you watch it through, you're like, oh, now it all makes sense. Like the sixth sense, who's watched the sixth sense? All right. Bruce Willis is, you know, this psychologist. the end, you find out he's actually, do you want me to ruin it for you? If you haven't seen it, <laughs> he's actually dead. And then you're like, oh my goodness, that's why the movie makes okay. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, that's why he doesn't get cold. Oh, that's why he doesn't have a relationship with his wife. Oh, okay, it all makes sense. If that's a lot like what we're gonna get into, into Genesis. It only makes sense when you read it again or when you look in the rearview mirror and you're like, oh, now I understand. So it's a brilliant, brilliant section we come into. Chapters 37 through 50. So let's jump in. Genesis 37, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. Isaac is the only patriarch that never left the promised land. These are the generations. It's a very interesting Hebrew word. No one's quite sure. The Toledads, it it would be more like this is the story, the ongoing story of Jacob. And so right after this, it starts into the main character, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. When love is bad, what we're seeing is we're getting set up for the rest of the book of Genesis. And we're seeing now there is a division in this family. And there's a number of them in this little section. Number one is this, It says that Joseph was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Who are those two ladies? They're the second class wives, right? Rachel was number one. Leah was number two, the sisters. Then they each had a handmaid that became one of Jacob's wives, Zilpah and Bilhah. So they are second tier. And if you remember back to chapter 33, When Jacob thought Esau was gonna kill him, was coming with 400 men, he thought, I'm dead. What did he do? He put these two second-class wives and all their sons out in front as a human shield for his favorite wife, Rachel, and his favorite son, Joseph. So the division happened way back then. So these brothers now feel this kind of tension that we're just second-class. We don't really matter in this family. Has that ever happened to you? Where you feel like you're second class, you're you're not as good as the rest of the people. How does that make you feel? Maybe you're in a place that uh, there's a lot of wealth or something. And so everyone's talking about their trips to Paris or uh, hanging out on a yacht. And you don't do that stuff. And you just wanna get in your Datsun and drive home. (laughs) But you're afraid it'll backfire on the way out. So you don't wanna do that. So you just gotta sit there. And you just feel like I don't really fit here and I don't like this. Maybe it's friendships where, you're always the last option, right? They try to find something to do, everyone else, and then if they can't find anything fun to do, then, then they call you. So you feel like, I'm just not that important. Maybe it's opportunities, maybe it's looks, maybe it's power. When that happens to you, we resent it. So now you have in these 10 brothers, you have this growing resentment toward what they, how they, they have been classed and what has happened to them. And they're just kind of, they're kind of mad. So you got that problem, number one. And it points it out right away. He's with the second class sons. Then number two, he's a tattletale. Who's had a sibling that told on them? Were you glad? Were you like, thank you. Thank you for keeping me on the straight and narrow. Thank you for not allowing me to stray. You are such a blessing to me. Here's what I've noticed with my five kids. And then we've had some other kids come in with us uh, for extended periods of time. Here's what I've noticed about the tattletale. They're always the good kid. It's always the self-righteous kid. It's always the kid that does, tries to do everything right. They become the tattletale. Have you noticed that? Like I, 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 and I've talked to other parents who are like, that's totally it. It's always the good kid. And they have like their Torah with them of all the rules and regulations of the house. And they're just waiting for someone to break it. They're like, okay. Like, dad, she did this and you told her not to. I'm like, I don't think I actually told her. Yes, you did. April 3rd at 12.30 PM, you told her she could not do that. Oh, I must have, all right. Right? It's the little legalist in them. And I always try to break that because that is a really, really bad thing. Leviticus 19.16 says, don't be a talebearer in the camp. Don't run around sin sniffing and pulling out those things from people. You just break relationships. So here we've got this, kind of self-righteous, probably kid now, who keeps bringing this bad report about his brothers. Maybe not all true. So there's your second division. And here's the third one. Dad loved Joseph more than everyone else. And he just didn't keep it quiet, like, you know, I just shouldn't really do this. He makes it obvious, gives him this coat that essentially says, you're the boss. And we talked about that on Sunday. This is the boss coat. It's not a working coat. He's got the Armani coat on while everyone else is in Carhartts. So it's very, very apparent what Jacob wants for him. And part of the brokenness is it's in Jacob, the dad, that I think Jacob got broke by his dad because Esau played favorites with him and Jacob was always longing for affirmation and always longing to hear his dad say, well done, man, you're my my favorite second son, whatever it is. He he never got that. And so there's this neediness that you see as a thread through Jacob's life. He's looking for someone to fill this gap. And then he gets Rachel and he's like, she's it. She's the center of my life. And then she dies. And so now the new center of his life is this young man named Joseph. Joseph, you're gonna be the center of my life. It's really, at its core, idolatry. That's what it is. Anything that we try to elevate up to God's status becomes an idol, and then it hurts us. Family can be an idol. I've mentioned this. I've sat with a lady who, her her son was doing some stuff, and she said, if he keeps doing this, it will kill me. I said, lady, you're giving your son way too much power. Way too much power. You have certain civilizations that, they have honor killings, where if the honor of the family is devalued somehow by what a daughter does, they kill that daughter. I mean, that's idolatry. It goes crazy. So right now, he's playing into that. Jacob, because of his neediness and his brokenness, now he's now he's breaking his family, to the next generation. The cycle continues. Because I've said before, if your pain is not transformed, it will be transferred. Jacob's still waiting for that pain to really be transformed in his life. And so now he's transferring it to the next generation of his kids, sad. So secondly, on Jacob, and this is the one that I think I can agree with. It says, because he was the son of his old age. Everyone loves a little puppy, right? Everyone loves a puppy. Then they grow up and they get bad breath and they slobber and they bark too much and they make you tired. So now you've got this old guy and he's got a young son. And there's something about that. I had Myron, my four-year-old, when I was 41 years old. And I had Carissa, my firstborn, when I was 28. There's a massive amount of change that happened to me in those 13 years. I am not the same person I was when Carissa was born. I was very, very intense with Carissa. I just thought I will be able to craft Carissa, into the model child. I think every firstborn child, that's why they're the firstborn have their issues. Every parent thinks, I'm gonna break the mold. I will do it with her. Like, I was, I'll tell you how convinced I was. So she was like 16 months old, not potty trained yet. So I had her for the evening. Charity had some business to do. And I had decided, I'm gonna potty train her tonight. <laughs> We're done. I'm just, it's just, it just takes some clear communication some details, some stuff, and I will do this. So we sat down, I fixed a good meal, and, and I said, okay, sweetie, come here. I wanna show you something, all right? You've been doing this this certain way, but if you've noticed, mom and dad don't do it that way. We don't wear a diaper. And I took her to the toilet, and I said, Pooh goes in there. And she's like, what? I'm like, it doesn't go in your diaper. Pooh actually goes in there, and you flush it, and it goes away. It's it's the best. She's like, what? So I played like three times in a row. And then on the third time, she's like, poo in there. I'm like, yes, poo in there. She's like, ah, and she starts dancing around and I'm dancing around. I'm thinking, I got it. I got it, man. It's not that hard. You just need to explain it to them simply and clearly and they will get it, right? So I'm just gloating. Just can't wait for Charity to come home and be like, it's done, man. Get rid of all the diapers. We have succeeded. So she has slipped out. She's gone upstairs And she comes back down into the bathroom with her favorite stuffed animal, which is Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) And she proceeded to take Winnie the Pooh and she threw him into the toilet. And she said, "Pooh in there. I went, oh, this is harder. All right, let's have another child. Try this again. This one didn't work. (laughs) I'm just, I'm not that intense anymore with my kids. So Myron, my youngest, is getting a very different dad than Carissa did. It's just that simple. Like you change as a parent, you, you just modify how you do things. And, and Myron, like he's, he still loves to go with me to the hardware store. I can't get Carissa to go to the hardware store with me, right? So there is, I can see this kind of affinity. And so it's a warning to me to really, really be careful in how I treat my kids, to make sure I am as equitable as possible with every single one of them, where they're at right now and where I'm at right now to the best of my ability to guard myself. Cause I could see this creeping in, same thing. So now we have, it's set up. Genesis is setting us up. Look at the seeds of division are right here. It's been going on really for a long time. And now it's starting to crack and it's gonna get worse. There's one step further, verse five. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. (laughs) He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for the dreams and for his words. So what he's doing, he's telling them the dream and he keeps telling it to them, keeps telling it to them, keeps telling them the words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept these sayings in mind. So Sunday I said, Joseph is absolutely insensitive to his words and how his words hurt people. Like really, really bad. Because it's not just he tells a dream, it's he keeps telling it, verse eight. And then he dreams a second dream. And he, instead of like journaling that, he should have just journaled it. If you have a dream like this kind of dream, where you think God has told you, you're gonna be the next Usain Bolt or Michael Phelps or Steve Jobs or whatever it is, journal it, get it notarized and put it away somewhere. And then if it does come to pass, you can be like, I actually had this dream and it really came to pass. Right? Don't, don't be like Joseph. Don't be like him, right? He's, he's close to, I think, a, a psychopath. Just unaware, a psychopath has no empathy, right? That's what they are. They, they don't empathize for people and they don't have the normal feelings. Do you know there's actually a test? I only said this to the eight o'clock. There's a test you can tell if someone's a psychopath. If you yawn, what's the normal reaction of the people around you? They yawn, right? Yawns are contagious. Do you know why that is? It's empathy. Essentially, your brain is saying to that other person, I get it, I'm tired too. That's what it is. Psychopaths don't yawn. So if you yawn and the person next to you does not yawn, run. (laughs) I could have just saved your life, man. It's that, I'm serious. So Joseph doesn't yawn, apparently. He's got major problems. But notice, notice dad here. So if I see a problem in my family as a father, it's my job to like, I should address this. But notice what Jacob does. He lets the first dream go and the words, verse nine. So he dreams and his words, he keeps saying stuff, keeps edging in, keeps doing this stuff. And he doesn't do anything about that until he's insulted, right? When he's gonna bow down to Joseph, he's like, all right, that's it, I'm rebuking you. What are you talking about, dude? You can't do that. How wrong is that? Because Jacob doesn't immediately step in and start writing these things, there's further division in this. If you are waiting for your kids to figure it out, you're gonna wait a long time. Our job is not to be good friends with our kids. Our job is to completely... uh, give ourselves to them becoming godly Jesus lovers, which requires, uh, hey, don't talk that way to people. Hey, be careful about sharing that kind of stuff. We aren't always supposed to be doing those things. But what I found about talking, talking with dads, and even in my own heart, I see it. The biggest sin of fathers to me is disengagement. Moms don't seem to do it. Maybe it's out of necessity because a mom, when a baby's born, they're the one having a nurse and all that kind of stuff. Dads though can kind of disengage from things and kind of just let, let dreams go on and let issues go on. Don't do that. You actually see it again in Moses, he does it. Read Exodus chapter three and four. God pins Moses to the ground and is like, dude, take care of your family before you're gonna be used by me. David does it with Absalom and it leads to a rebellion in his kingdom. Solomon does it to Rehoboam. I mean, you see this pattern of dads being disengaged from their sons. Don't do that. Engage with them. And that does not mean force your will upon them. Make them do what you want them to do. No, I was just talking to a guy before church about this. Like, no way. What, What you do is you find out what they're interested in and you jump into that. Like the best example of this to me has been Glenn Litwiller. So Glenn, man, he just, uh, he, he did horses. And, and I know he doesn't love horses. You know how I know that? Because he doesn't have horses anymore. He got rid of them, but he had a daughter that loved horses and he started an equestrian team. And then he became president of the equestrian team in Oregon. And he traveled all over like everywhere, dragging his horse and his daughter because his daughter loved horses. He just engaged with her. And that, that, that was like a model for me. I'm like, that's okay, girls, what do you love to do? Lodge, what do you love to do? Myron, what do you love to do? I'm gonna engage with you in these things. And while you're on the way, you're gonna talk and share and help. And hey, you know, that dream you shared, don't do that anymore. But Jacob here is too late. The, the division's taken place. He doesn't do it until he's insulted. And now these 10 brothers are now jealous. They're jealous because they know where they fit in the pecking order. We're down here. We don't really matter to dad. Dad didn't say anything when the dream insulted us. Dad used us as a human shield. We don't really matter. We don't have the fancy coat. They knew they are second-class citizens. What do you do if you're treated like that? Do you come jealous like this? I have a saying that it's credited to Ronald Reagan, but then other people say, other, someone else said it. But I have it written down because I think it's really good. And it's this: it's amazing how much a person can accomplish if he doesn't care who gets the credit. If I really believe that this is the kingdom and that we're all contributors to the kingdom, I shouldn't care who gets the credit. I shouldn't care whose idea it is, I, I don't care. Man, is it furthering his kingdom? I can play second class. I can play second fiddle. I can do that if it's actually benefiting the kingdom. To me, that's how you do it. So now got all the seeds in and here it goes. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. (laughs) And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So Joseph here is sent by his his dad to go find out how the boys are doing. I like that. Dads, if you have older kids, do you ever stop caring about what they're doing? You never do, right? Dads always want to know how their kids are doing. My my father-in-law always is interested in what his kids are doing, even though they're 44. If you're a dad, or if you're rather a son or a daughter, and you have not contacted your father or mother in more than a month, do it. Tell them how you're doing. Don't do it now, wait till after service. (laughs) But they always want to hear from you. Always want to hear from you. So Jacob here, hey, I want to know how my kids are doing. How my kids are doing. What he didn't know was this, when he sent Joseph away and as he watched Joseph walk down the dusty path and out towards Shechem, what he didn't know is he wouldn't see that son for 20 years. I wonder how he said goodbye. I wonder how he said it. I wonder if he regretted how he said goodbye when he thought he was dead. Make your goodbyes count. You just never know. I always do the double glance. Do you do that? Like when you're, you're, you're leaving somebody or uh, I'm leaving my house or whatever, and, and my kids are outside, I'll be like, hey, see you later. And then I'll drive a little bit. And then I always do this just to see if they're looking. Do you do that or is that just me? I always do the double glance. And the same thing when I say goodbye to my kids or they're going out, I always, hey, bye. And then I watch them. And I wait to see if they're gonna look back at me Just say, hey, see you later. Because goodbyes matter. The the best goodbye I've ever heard of was this guy named Bob Goff, who's read Love Does. Brilliant. If you have not read it, read that book. You will be so inspired. You just want to go out and do something. So brilliant book. There's this guy who wrote a book about Bob Goff, a visit he had. And Bob Goff has some kind of cabin up in British Columbia or something, and they were doing this kayak thing and they're kayaking down the coast. And they knew that Bob Goff had this place there. So they set up a lunch. So they go and have lunch with Bob Goff and they're, they're done eating lunch. And his whole family comes out and they're on the dock and they're like waving goodbye to him. And they're all like, I don't know, 12 of them or something in these sea kayaks doing this sea kayak, two week long thing. So they're, they're paddling away and they're looking back. Hey, and then on the count of three, Bob Goff, his wife, all his kids jumped off the dock into the water. And they asked him, why'd you do that? He goes, because I wanted to make my goodbye special. I love that. I bet you Jacob, right here, wished he'd made his goodbye special. You just never know. Make your goodbye special. Here's the best news Revelation tells us that in eternity, there's no night. You know why I like that? Because what's nighttime? It's good night. It's goodbye. It's see you later, right? That's the time that whatever you're doing, you're having a great day, you're visiting with friends, you're at the coast, wherever it is, the best thing you can imagine. At some point, night comes and guess what we have to say? Goodbye. In heaven, there's no goodbyes. There's no 20 years and you're gone. Jacob here watches his son walk away and will not see him again for 20 years. And they saw him, verse 18, from afar, And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So the seeds of division have grown And more than that, as you read this, what you see is there's this seed of hate. Verse four, they hated him, couldn't speak peacefully to him. Verse five, he told them their dreams. They hated him even more, right? They hated him even more, verse eight, for his dreams and his much words. They're jealous of him, verse 18. They want to murder him, verse 19, right? It grows, when you express an emotion, what happens to that emotion? So if you say, man, I hate, fill in the blank. Right after you say that, how do you feel? Are you like, oh man, it's so good to get that off my chest. I have a peace that passes understanding now. A joy unspeakable, oh, it feels so good. No, what happens in you? You actually hate more. When you speak an emotion, you strengthen that emotion. It's been scientifically shown. When you start talking about your anger or how you hate somebody, guess what happens inside of you? Your brain replays that in your brain, in your mind, and starts to flood you with the same chemicals you had in the original thing. And then actually it attaches it to all these other bad memories you have. You just get more and more worked up, right? That's why people get worked up. So it's happening to them. They're expressing this emotion and it's getting worse and worse and stronger and stronger. When you speak it, you strengthen it. What are you amplifying in your life right now? Because they started with hate, then much hate, it grew into jealousy, and now it's murder. Be very careful about what you are amplifying in your life. And now we have Reuben who comes in at the last minute, they're ready to kill Joseph and he saves him And I think it's really important that it's Reuben because the last time we heard about Reuben was in chapter 33, verse 22, a very gross verse, where Reuben, right after Rachel dies, Reuben sleeps with Bilhah, one of his dad's wives, right? And we talked about that in chapter 33, why he may have done that. So you're like, ew, dude's bad. But then here, chapter 37, you're like, oh, he's good. I think this is very purposeful because no one is all bad or all good. But what we tend to do, especially when we start expressing emotions about people is we do one of two things to people. Either we demonize them and make them, oh, he's all bad. Or we do the opposite, which is is idolize them and make them all good. And and both of them are just terrible positions to be in. Because if you're idolized, eventually you will fail and then people will usually demonize you. (laughs) The people that they once idolize become the ones they, they demonize. And people aren't all good or all bad, right? The carriers of the promise are part of the problem. So be careful of those tendencies. Right here, Reuben is showing us, man, he, he, I don't know why he did that, but here he's doing something good. All right, so let's finish this up. Verse 25, then, just, just look at this. Then they sat down to eat. What do you think about when you read that verse? They've just grabbed their little brother, the one they want to kill, they've thrown in a pit to kill him. And what's the next thing they do? Hey, would you pass the ketchup? Right, that's callous. This is a callous crew right here. Ruthless is what it's saying. It, they're so unemotionally affected by this. They sit down and they eat their, their, their dinner or their lunch or whatever it is. Just, eh, no big deal, pass the ketchup. Huh. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. These are embalming stuff that the Egyptians would buy to embalm. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let us not hand, let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So I want you to notice something before we finish this. Joseph, happens to go to Shechem. And when he's there, he happens to meet this guy who's like, oh, your brothers told me they're not here. I overheard them. He happened to overhear them that they're down in Dothan, right? So then he comes down there and when he gets there, they want to kill him, but Reuben happens to be there and Reuben happens to save him and he happens to be thrown into a pit. And while the brothers sit down to eat, they look up and there happens to just be a caravan heading to Egypt and Judah happens to say, hey, we should make some money off this guy. So they sell him. And as the story goes on, he's gonna go down to Egypt and he's gonna be happened to be bought by this guy named Potiphar, who happens to be a very, power, very powerful man in Egypt's circles. So that when he's thrown into prison, he's not thrown in the common prison, he's thrown into the king's prison. So while he's in the king's prison, uh, the cupbearer and the baker happen to be thrown into the same king's prison as him. And he happens to get a relationship with them and interpret dreams for them. And one of them happens to go back and tell Pharaoh two years later, hey, there's a guy that can interpret dreams. That's a lot of happens, huh? Sometimes it might look dark and we may not be able to see it, but that's God, right? You reread that with the sixth sense and you're like, oh my goodness, that's God. That's God. He's been guiding me. He's been working, I call it judo theology or jujitsu, turning the, the anger and hatred of my brothers against themselves and actually using that to propel his plan forward. And you see it very often, only when you'll stop for a moment and look back and be like, boy, look at all those happens. Look at all those happens. That's God. That's God's work, right? I love that when that happens awesome. I remember a couple years ago, I borrowed a a guy, lent me his fifth wheel. I didn't even want to borrow it because I hate borrowing things because I always think I'm going to break them. So he lent me this fifth wheel and we went camping in it and and I was trying to return it. It's Monday night. I have Tuesday morning elders meeting and I'm going to return it. So I said, well, I'm going to just take it down to the car wash and just wash it off. And we had this jar of change back then. So I said, where's the jar of change? And and I'm kind of rushed and intense. And I can't find, cannot find this jar of change. It's normally this one spot. It's not there. So we start looking. It's like five minutes go by. I'm like, where is this jar of change? Kids, who has it? How, you know, which one of you took it? Then like, it it probably 20 minutes goes by before we find the jar of change. And I'm just, by that time, I'm not happy. I'm not a happy camper. I'm like, oh, I could be done with this. I could be back. Okay. So I get in the, in the guy's truck because I didn't have a fifth wheel. So I'm in his truck and I'm pulling the trailer and I pull into this car Watch this one right by Bymart. And I'm pulling in there and I look up and I think, oh, I got plenty of room. And I'm pulling through and I'm about ready to pull all the way through when this car, this truck kind of pulls in and the guy jumps out. Turns out to be the owner. He's like, dude, stop. I'm like, what? He's like, you're about ready to run into a two-inch pipe that's sticking down and rip the roof off your fifth wheel. So I get out I look up there. I'm like, oh my goodness. I was so thankful I did not find that jar of change. Right? So thankful. I was probably the one that misplaced it. (laughs) What was that? That was God saying, I'm gonna prevent something really bad from happening to you, Matt. Sometimes we just gotta stop and meditate and look in the rear view mirror over a good cup of tea and then start expressing gratitude because when you express gratitude, it amplifies it. And all of a sudden you become more and more and more thankful. Instead of being more and more hateful and jealous and murderous, you become thankful. And man, life is beautiful then. So Joseph will have time to reflect. And I think he does this. And that's why he can say in Genesis 50, 20, what you guys meant for evil, God has turned to good, to the saving of many lives. I see it now. All these happens, right? So now they tell dad, when Reuben returned to the pit, and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we found, please identify it, whether it's your sons or not. Notice they don't technically lie, right? They don't say, hey, Joseph got killed. They're like, hey, we found this coat of big sleeves that only you made and no one else has in the entire region. Could you tell us whose this might be? And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son's son many days. All his sons... And all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol, the grave, to my son mourning. Thus, his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Pharaoh in Egypt, an officer of Pharaoh, excuse me, sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So, sin here is gonna multiply like a rabbit because they have to deceive their dad. And then for the next 20 years, when Joseph would be brought up or Jacob would ask, now tell me, how'd you find that garment? Did you find anything else? They'd have to lie over and over and over and over again. How many lies are linked to this? How many sins are linked to this thing? It just, that's what sin does. How many lies do you have to tell to protect one lie? And I've told you this before, when you lie, studies have shown you actually get stupider. Do you know that? Here's why. When you tell the truth, you just put the truth in a file in your brain and you put the file away and you never even think about it. And if someone asks you about that situation, you just pull out the file and you just go, oh, this is what happened, but if you lie, what you have is you have the file with the truth in it. Then you have this other file that has, who have I lied to? And you've got to then put stuff into the lie file and you're always kind of worried about who have I lied to and who do I tell, who have I told the truth, who have I lied to, right? So your brain then is spinning this plate, this lie essentially, and trying to remember who did I lie to? And it takes horsepower to do that. Horsepower that could be doing something good. Instead it's like, oh, who do I lie to? Who did I lie to? Who do I lie to, right? It's a bummer, just tell the truth. Tell the truth. This lie is just gonna haunt them for the next 20 years. Probably actually the rest of this book its gonna haunt them, okay? So here's this chapter. Here's what you see. You're seeing the photocopy problem. The favoritism of a father to his sons leads to hatred, murder, bitterness, right? It's the exact same thing that Jacob went through. Now he's putting his family through, Those cycles are in all of us. I've said this before. Confession is the course to change. When you see a cycle in your life, 1 John 1, 9 would say you confess that and Jesus will cleanse you of that unrighteousness. It's a continual confession. I keep seeing this cycle. I keep seeing this cycle. I don't wanna be this way. Help me, help me, help me, help me. But the bigger message of Genesis is this. I think most people miss this in the Bible because they read the Bible to like learn lessons from the characters on how to live a good life. Is that what the Bible's about? No, right? Because the carriers of the promise are part of the problem. So they're broken. Jacob, I don't want to model my life after, who wants some, who here would say, I would like to model my life after Jacob? Deceit, lies, crazy, chaos, no. That's not what the Bible is about. The Bible is about God breaking into broken humans with his grace and his mercy and his providence and then redirecting us and fixing us. That's what the Bible is about. He's the only hero, okay? And often the only time you see that breaking in is when you stop for a moment and the Bible calls it meditation or you just kind of stop and you kind of look back on your life and you're like, oh, wow, God. I see it now, I see it. Well, that's my problem, Matt. Why doesn't God just tell this family what he's doing with Joseph? Why is it dark for 20 years? Because God's too smart to do that. Here's what I mean. I have a 17 year old daughter right now and I'm trying to impress to my 17 year old daughter how important school is. I want her to go to college and I want her to get a degree and I want her to do these things, right? And so I am like just from every angle possible. And her normal answer is this, dad, I just want to have fun. And I don't like school and I just want to have fun. And so I keep telling her, you won't have fun if you don't have funds. (laughs) Okay, I'm just gonna tell you that right now. You won't have fun if you don't have funds. And this is a way that you can get that. But it does not matter. It doesn't matter. Right? She's not, I'm not gonna say it's the Dunning-Kruger effect that she's you know unskilled and unaware of it. I'll say she's too young to know it yet. She's 17. Now imagine me trying to have that same conversation with my four-year-old Myron. Myron, I want you to go to college. And it starts right now. You study your math and you start saving up for this. And what, what would Myron do? He'd be just like huh, college, what is college, right? It wouldn't even register on him. He'd be like, what are you, you're crazy. You can't talk to me about that. You gotta stop pronouncing yogurt wrong. It's not wogurt. it's yogurt. These are important things for college, come on. Uh, you'd say I'm nuts. Okay, God trying to talk to us about that stuff is like me trying to talk to Myron about college. It, it just doesn't work, and God knows that. And God knows this, what you actually need is my presence. That's what Myron needs. He doesn't need to know all that, he just needs to hang out with me. Hey, buddy, come with me. And as we're together, you talk about things. And over the course of, well, another 14 years, I will help him and develop this stuff in him and walk with him and he'll learn that stuff. What he needs is me. He doesn't need me to tell him everything that's out there in the next 18 years. He Just needs me. And that's what we need. We don't need God to be like, okay, this is exactly how your plan's gonna go. And we'd be freaked out. Like, I don't understand that. I just wanna have fun. I don't understand that's not gonna work. I just wanna have fun, God. What we need is him and his presence. And what you see in Genesis is God is constantly coming back to his people as broken as they are and saying, I'm here, I'm guiding, and I'm with you. That's our hope. Our hope is not trying to figure out, oh, how do you do this thing? Our hope is, our hope is in him that we keep our eyes on Jesus the author, and the finisher of our faith. That's what we do. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Walk with him. And you'll love where you end up. If you keep your eyes on Jesus and you walk with him, you will love where you end up. It's really that simple. So Jesus, I thank you for these incredible stories of how you worked with your people I think you often we really have to reread the story to get it because your work is not always on display but your work is always happening the ladder to heaven is full of angels and messengers going up and down from the heavenlies to earth you are active I pray that we would be a people that reflect and meditate and look in the rear view mirror and see your activity and see your hand and that we become grateful, thankful people for your presence. That you are with us even to the end of this age. That even bad things, 10 hateful brothers being thrown into a pit, being sold into slavery, even those bad, evil things, in your hands can be worked into a tapestry that's beautiful. So I pray for any in here who may be feeling the effects of evil and sin and brokenness. Maybe even feeling like Jacob, I'm gonna go to my grave this way. I pray that as you did to Jacob, you enlivened his spirit. I pray that tonight, Genesis 37, that even when it's dark and we can't see it, you're happening, you're moving. I pray that tonight you'd bring hope to our hearts and that we'd know that all things work together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose that we would know that if you spared not your only son, but delivered him up on our behalf, how shall you not with him give us all good things? That those are the things we would know. And we'd be expressing gratitude and then that gratitude would become stronger and stronger in our lives. So go with us. Ultimately, we need your presence. We need you. We need listening ears to you so that we can rule well in the sphere that you have us in. So go with us, I pray. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.